Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. This is Bottom of the Beaker, the weekly show about the design, ducks, and strategy of Keyforge, everybody's favorite unique card game. And I do mean everybody. My co-host tonight is uh, none other than the man who says that his favorite decks are all in the 34 to 57 Saz range. <laughs> the best decks. I am, of course, talking about uh, Quickdraw 3457. How are you doing tonight, Quickdraw? I'm pretty good. How are you tonight? Uh, I guess I didn't say who I am, but I'm doing great. And it's JT Russell right here. <laughs> what is your favorite Saz range? Oh, that's tough. I, I feel like low to mid 70s is a lot of fun. Low to I was going uh, to guess low 60s for you low 60s i have some fun low 60s my perhaps favorite deck is a low 60s deck that is of course denzag which is criminally underrated at 60 something well they just they just released a saz update tonight so we may not have all of this data memorized already 65 wow yeah there you go, there you go. i know you like those low 60s you got it denzag is <laughs> one that came to mind for me you got a few others in that range too i do and we're not just rambling. We're talking about, we're going to be talking about this tonight. Yeah. So uh, I guess on that note, um, we have a winner to announce, right? Winner to announce. And my quest to give away Quick Draws VM 23 decks. <laughs> the quest is about to become successful. Seventh Sanctum card has been played. We were about to forge a key. Uh, so we announced a couple episodes back that. We were going to be doing a giveaway and folks could send in either a topic suggestion or a puzzle uh, or, you know, basically anything else you wanted to send in. Uh, just say hi and probably would have put you into the drawing. And we have a winner. Uh, I'm going to tell you all who it is. It is Josh T. Josh T. I won't say your last name, but Josh T, you're the only Josh to make a submission. And not only that, but Josh, you were the only person to send an email to uh this is a really bad idea at sloppynetwork.com. <laughs> That's good enough to get the win already. But I mean, you your know, email yeah. also had some great content in it. So mm -hmm. almost like a double winner. Almost like a double winner. But yeah, Josh T, you're getting a VM23 deck. So yeah, shoot us a message back with your mailing deets or I'll uh, ping you later this week and we'll get it all sorted out. So congrats to you. And thank you for the awesome topic suggestion too. Also, thanks to the other folks who sent them in. There were a lot of great topics. And sorry, mom, you can only get one entry per submission. Uh, that's why you didn't win with your many, many submissions, I guess. Uh, yeah, if your mom would have won the drawing, there's no way I would have allowed that. Uh, family members exempt, because we all know that Mama Russell would have given that Vault Master <laughs> straight back to you. And that's just, just not cool, man. Not cool. So yeah, friends and family excluded, unfortunately. But uh, well, not no, not friends and family. Just family, just immediate family. Immediate Everyone's family. friends. Everyone's friends. Yeah. But yeah, congrats to Josh. Thanks to everybody else. And you don't have to stop. I guess keep sending them out. But yeah. So Josh's topic was around questions about SaaS, and uh, we see some very successful low SaaS decks out there. We see some very successful high SaaS decks out there. Kind of getting at how do we go about identifying some of the good lower SAS ones, how rare are those ones? You know, are they as rare as they seem to be? And a lot of things kind of in that vein. And I don't know if we'll we'll stick to, you know, each prompt that that Josh laid out as as was laid out, but I think it's gonna be a great jumping off point. I'm kind of excited to talk about it. I do love low SAS decks specifically and uh I do love SAS cap though we're not gonna be talking about SAS cap specifically. Yeah, this is definitely a bit different than SAS cap especially because what we are looking for are trying to find ways to help you find some low SAS gems in your collection that might be competitive in a competitive sense, not just competitive in a SAS cap, which is a very different type of meta, looking for different things, trying to do different things. So we're not going for that. We are not looking for a SAS cap meta. We are looking for something that more players might have in their collections than they think and try to like mm. figure out what can we do as players to analyze and find those kind of decks. Uh, you mean like Denizag? Like Denizag. <laughs> Denizag were good. Uh, there are some notable decks in the community. And uh, you know, I know we don't want to like talk too much about specific decks, but these are some decks that people might know already, you know, like without us having to talk about them and share the cards, drop the links. Um, most prominently with, with this podcast, obviously Rector from Not mm -hmm. Tonight. We we call it famous now. I, I think it's fair. It's a famous deck. Yes. Famous uh, deck. 
excellent AOA deck with Time Traveler, no Amber Control, except for like one or two cards, Independent Seed, lots of different lines of play, very cool deck. Um, so that's one. Aurora's deck, Natural Philosopher, Bazzi Biztoff, is probably one of the, if not the most famous one, actually won the Alliance Championship in the UK this year, I believe, last year. As an Archon deck, as a low Saz Archon deck, which is like, what is it, low 70s, I think it is now? It's coming in at 70 right now. It may have been high 60s even for a while. It um, was, yeah. So those are, you know, two of the more prominent ones. This is the kind of thing we're looking for, like decks that, you know, you might open. I, I honestly think that, I don't know, I don't want to speak for Aurora and not tonight, but I feel like when they open those decks, I don't think they instantly looked at this and like, wow, like this could win like this could win a major tournament. I don't think they had that thought. Maybe they did. And that's no disrespect to them if they to say that they, I don't think they had that thought. It's just that both of these decks on paper are pretty unassuming. And mm. for those of us that have lots of decks at home, I have over 500 right now. Um you have an unspecified quantity that <laughs> will not be discussed. How do you kind of like we've all got those kind of decks that you look at that and you're like, okay, like that seems seems pretty good. I wonder if wonder how good you know, and we're going to try to try to tease out some ways to to pick those out of your collection. And I think we'd be remiss too to mention, not to mention that uh, you brought a, a lower SAS deck to the uh, Keyforge World Championship this year. Um, looking over the decks there, I have it reverse sorted by SAS, and you're tied for the top. You're tied for the top, as it were. Top, <laughs> top as in bottom. Yeah, I, I, I wish that I had a better performance so that that argument would carry more weight. Uh, I brought a 73 Saz deck to the World Championship this year. Went one and two with it. I beat Woe, which is what I came to do, and I lost to AOA and Coda. So um, I still I don't regret that decision. I think the deck's great. I think it certainly could have competed. Uh, I got it for a bargain on the secondary market, uh, and you know I I do believe um, that I'm going to try to to work through some things tonight on this show this episode to point out that I think these decks are more common than we believe. Mm. And not everyone, maybe not everyone has one, but I think more of us do than we think. And there's definitely some on the secondary market. Yeah, absolutely on the secondary market. And I think this is also how we differentiate this topic a little bit from, you know, just making it work with a small collection or just playing on a budget. Because it's not just, okay, I have these 10, 20 decks. How can I get the most out of them? It's also like, Maybe I have a couple hundred decks and I'm trying to figure out which are the ones I should invest a little bit more time getting some reps with, or if I'm on a, on the hunt uh, and, and maybe not wanting to spend too, too much money, um, you know, how am I going to find some of these gems that have been, that folks are sleeping on? So before we get to the meat of this, while we're somewhat close to the top of the show, I think we should mention we have some, some news, maybe a teaser, maybe it's news. I don't know how we want to, I don't know what mm. it is. Maybe it's both, um, but sloppy lab work. Exciting announcement. We have a Discord server now. Uh, we had multiple people ask us about it in the last week or so. And we thought, you know, like, especially with a lot of the, the survey that you sent out a couple weeks ago now, we thought, like, maybe this is, you know, good time to do a little launch here, communicate more directly with all of our listeners. That means you. And so uh, we will be dropping a link and an invite to the Discord server in the show notes. Uh, if you are watching on Twitch, we'll drop it in the chat shortly. And uh, if you are listening to this on YouTube or Twitch and you don't have the link handy, feel free to reach out to us and uh, we'll, we'll see if you're cool enough to be let in. And uh, if not, everyone should get the link uh, by the time <laughs> this show drops. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting. Um, it's going to be very cool to, to talk directly with all of you guys. It's, it always means so much to me personally when I get someone reach out to me and say, hey, like I loved your last episode. Um, so hopefully we can kind of just have more Direct interactions. Very excited to talk to you guys all more. We started out with some of the past guests, inviting them all in, and they've been thank you, thank you to kind of helping us get stuff situated and the feedback there. So that's been fun. Looking forward to it indeed. So come on in. We'll try not to bite too hard. I mean, unless you're into that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Even if you are, <laughs> I will not be biting. Okay. Well, quick try might not bite. You might get a JT bite. I don't know. Uh, JT's <laughs> got to reread the code of conduct if he's going to be biting people. I don't know. Uh, all right. All right. <laughs> I guess I should reread that. I don't know. <laughs> Topic of tonight, the name of the episode is Saz Busters, and we, we couldn't help but think of the Ghostbusters theme. I guess there's a connection with Geistoid. Can we sing the uh, Ghostbusters theme, but as Saz Busters? All right, well, all, on three. All right, one, two, three. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I heard you have a really good singing voice. 
you heard wrong. waiting for this. You heard wrong. <laughs> Maybe not tonight has the uh, not tonight has the singing voice. You have the magic tricks. There you go. Okay. I think I think uh, Crusader is a good singer too. But anyway, we He's digress. He's got to be. All right. So Sazbusters. This was a great topic. Again, as you mentioned, sent in by Josh T. Very thankful for that. We read through a ton of content in Josh's email. Really exciting stuff. Hopefully we can try to answer all or most of Josh's questions and points. And so this is really interesting because it definitely made me rethink about, like, okay, like, what decks do I want to like revisit and how am I going to find those as well? So this is very uh, applicable, I think, to everybody, um, but it made me really think this week as well. And I always had a, a you know, I, I have tags in DOK that I use for decks that I want to try out, like a playtest tag and maybe like a, a fun playtest tag for something. I was like, oh, this looks fun, but probably not good. But I also have this playtest play tag where it's things that I think like, man, this might be good. And if I only had enough time to try out all of those, I have probably like, I don't even know, 50 or 60 at this point, which is just at that wow. point, it gets to be too many. Right. Because like you you set up a system where you're thinking, I have 78. Great. You set up a system where you're like, this, this is great. I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to get to play this deck more. And then you just keep doing it and you don't play those games enough. And now I'm at 78 decks that I say, yeah, I should give this a shot. But um, the important thing that I am missing with this process is that you really need to play them, like get the reps in. That is like, in my opinion, how you're going to know. And I, I realized that we're going to start with like kind of a cop-out answer, like play the deck but it's kind of true and don't just play it once don't just play it five times play it like 10 or 15 times because these low saz decks they're not going to have all of the power cards you're not going to have all gas you're going to need to have more nuances to your play to cards you hold to cards you're digging for and they're going to take a little bit of practice more practice than you might get from like the big bangers and so it, it is not really a cop-out when i say get some reps in with it. I really think that if you can isolate the decks that you want to try out, and we'll talk about more specifics of finding those, the reps first and foremost is how you're, is the only way you're going to really know for sure. So you're kind of saying, yeah, these, these 90 plus SAS decks, they're, they're showing up, you know, one in a thousand ish. The lower SAS bangers seem like they might be as rare, but the, the reality is, but they're probably out there and folks aren't giving them enough of a shot. And so if you feel like you've got one, that's got some legs. Yeah, give it that 10, 15, 10, 10 or 15 reps and see what it does. And I think that's true too. I think that a lot of the higher rated decks will often just have higher card quality. If if not be better decks, they may just have higher card quality. And so there's a lot of higher rated decks that will kind of play themselves a little bit more than a lower rated deck will. And that doesn't mean you can't get as much out of it, uh, but it might mean that you have to spend a little time working with it to get the most out of it that you can. Do you like that 10 or 15 number? Is that enough? I I really don't feel like I've necessarily gotten a great sense for what a deck's doing until at least 5 to 10 more for Woe and definitely more if there's a lot of dynamicism or complexity to the deck. Like, like, uh, like I have uh, some lower rated Coda decks that are really just trying to jam some pips, maybe reap, maybe reap a couple times, um, but there's not a ton of like depth or complexity to what they're trying to do at least to my to my eye and if there is it's probably going to be something something that i find in the 50 reps range mm -hmm. <laughs> um uh, but i think for a lot of for a lot of decks yeah five to ten i know uh plenty of folks will say yeah i try and get 10 reps at least with any of my decks um i can't say i've done that with all of mine but yeah once i've hit 10 i feel like i've got a decent at least flavor like taste taste for the flavor of the deck yeah, and like you said, more with Woe, just because there's so much variance in Woe that you're not going to... You could play the deck three times, and it's going to be three different decks. It's going to take more than that. And I know Beehawk would say, even for Coda and AOA decks, would say it's more than 10 or 15. I think he would... If he were here, he'd probably say, like, at least 20 or 30. Gosh, I wish I had the chart. Um, it was one I had shared a while back when I was looking at decks for Adaptive, and I uh, had picked one out. I was looking at my record on it with the old Crucible tracker, and I, at the time, had something like 50 plays with the deck. And if you'll remember, quick draw the Crucible Tractor Cracker would show a little a little chart with your wins and loss, you know, red squares and green squares. And the first twenty five squares in that chart, in that fifty square chart, were like you know three quarters red, and the second twenty five were like three quarters green. And it was like, yeah, I can see where the inflection point was, and it was right around the twenty five play mark. So there's definitely, you know, sometimes ten won't be enough, but it's at least a good point to see where you're starting to 
have things click. Yeah. And that is interesting because like I, if there's a deck that I'm looking to purchase on the secondary market that is a little bit more expensive, uh, then I'm more likely to get more reps to play with it before I decide if I want to buy it. And I've had multiple cases where I test something on the secondary market and I win like eight out of 10 or something like that. And I'm thinking like this, this feels great. I'm getting the feel for it. it. It's played really well, like right out of the gate. And then I get it and like hit ruts. And so 10 games is not enough of a sample size to say definitively one way or another. So again, like even more reps, but like, I think, I think after 10, if it's a very, it's a, if it's a fairly straightforward deck, you're going to know if it's not the one you're going to know. Um, if you're not feeling like your decisions matter, if you're feeling like you run into too many situations that you don't have an answer for, even if you did draw the cards in the right order, that's going to be a red flag to me that like, yeah, this probably isn't going to be the one. Um, you have to be very careful. I think creature control is the one thing that sticks out. Like if you don't have any creature control, you're going to have a lot of games where you're just going to feel pretty helpless. Um, you might need some other ways around that, like scaling amber control, like just so they, if they do have a board that they can reap out with that you're, you know, at least able to cap them from going like above nine or so just from that threat. But I do think creature control at lower SAS is pretty important. And uh, if you don't have it, you got to make sure that your deck is working towards another game plan, whether that is like a really heavy rush, a key cheat, some kind of disruption, things like that, that I think, you know, could make up for that lack of C. Why do I feel like you're looking at Denizag with the 4.3 C when you're, you're just kind of like this, this look in your eye, like, ah, oh, it's not going to fly. I mean, <laughs> I, I have Guadalupe is, is pretty similar. Guadalupe is very low C as well. It's, I think, mm-hmm. a seven or eight, something like that. And it's one of my favorite Dark Tidings decks. And for those low C decks, if you have a board wipe or you have something, like I'm not sure if Denizeg even has anything like that, you need to be very careful about how you play it. And uh, looking at Denizeg, this is just a AOA rush deck, basically. And it has 4.3 C, but it does have a Chota Hazri, lots of ways to recur it. So you can set up, like, your game plan is different. You're not just... You know, you're not really as concerned about the opponent's board. You're concerned about making three keys before they do and being able to do it faster. And that's okay. I think the the decks that can do that are more rare. If I had a deck that was like heavy and rushed and didn't have a key cheat and it didn't have creature control, I'd be pretty unsatisfied because you're just going to, you're going to end up losing to something like a Diasilis or a Timoti the Damned, you know, things like that. So you're going to have like, more of those kind of bad matchup cards if you don't have a key cheat and you don't have C and you don't have a ton of efficiency. So you got to look not for necessarily a well-rounded deck, but something that has a game plan to make up for that deficiency. Yeah, no, I, I like this because this we're starting to home in on a little bit on, you know, what things should you look for? And especially if your deck is much lower, you're you're probably having some holes. And the question then is like, what am I getting? in exchange for those holes and if what you're getting is enough to have a reasonable game plan like denizag yeah it's it's not a great deck but it illustrates what you can do when you are all in on your deck having teeth and no defense right so in in the world before world before woe it could do the runaway board state thing which sometimes that's just good enough and it can also rush and then throw out a key cheat and i really really like having some sort of reach or disruption available if you're if you're kind of trying to punch up right you need a way to get get over sneak over the line as it were <laughs> i have a few other decks like i know we're talking about low size decks but when i think of my favorite low creature control decks i think of one of the strongest decks i've ever opened which is a mass mutation deck called macrobell and has just runaway mutants three Torados, and its only creature control is a kerzap and a standardized testing and i was very very like scared of playing that deck competitively when I first got it, because I was like, man, this looks so powerful. It's got three Infernuses, ways to recur them, but it has like so little creature control. I've always been like, you guys know, like I've always been someone to hate on Worlds Collide because it has no creature control, like in most decks. And I see a Worlds Collide deck with like 5C and I'm like, I'm not afraid of that. It's a bad deck, you know? And then I open Macro Bell and I'm like, yeah, this is just like all of those decks that I've always criticized. But as I played it, and I got reps with it, I learned about like having situations where like my opponent might have six creatures and I'm still holding my cruise out. And you're making them try to commit to the board even more because if you just play the cruise app, 
which is the, like the only way that I have to clear creatures along with standardize, and they just refill the board the next turn, you're not you're not any better off. Like you need to learn how to play those cards, and you can compensate for low C like that if you just get the reps and you understand like okay like what's the, the what's the right point where I need to hold this card for and play it. And so there are ways to play around those kind of deficiencies in decks that I find very like satisfying and fulfilling. And I know that that's like a high SAS example. It's like 85 or something like that now. But I think a similar principle is going to apply to your low SAS decks as well. Like if, if creature control is at a premium for you, you want to make sure that you use it at the exact right time and you don't discard it or play it for very little value. And so I think that's something that you can achieve through reps, knowing your deck, having a heads up, heads up game plan and kind of being smart about your strategy and what your deck's trying to do. Whereas, I don't know, maybe, maybe folks will gravitate towards these higher SAS decks because you can be a little sloppier and get away with not having to worry about those things as much. There's another concept here that's, that's relevant that we're going to mention Aurora's name again, because she's done a lot of uh, contributions to this kind of thought and, uh, and what, cause you know, she's, she's the owner and most prominent player of, of natural philosopher Bazzi Biztoff. Um, and she coined the term, I'm pretty sure she's the one that coined it, affinity. And I think having an affinity for a deck that you're trying to get these reps with is extremely important as well. Uh, and that just basically means that, you know, the deck you're playing, you enjoy playing with it. It leans into your style. You're playing it how the deck wants to be played. And it's something that you are good at and enjoy doing. And if you don't really enjoy playing a deck, even if you think like, oh, yeah, this might this might be a really good, great 68, 69 size deck, but I hate playing it. Well, like, I, I think I think that's not going to work in the long run. So in addition to the reps, I think you also want to find something that you can look at and say, yeah, this would be a lot of fun for me personally. And that's going to be different for everyone. Mm. Yeah, I think the kind of affinity aligns when your your intuition kind of matches the right thing to do uh, most more often, right? If your intuition is telling you to, pulling you in a direction that's not right for the deck, like, oh, I just really hate pitching cards and sometimes I really need to hold the right card uh, to play this deck properly. Uh, there's not going to be a great, you may not have a great affinity for that deck or you may not enjoy playing it because it's trying to make you do things that aren't necessarily fun for you. So having that alignment is pretty key. The last thing I do want to say too on kind of the reps and affinity front um, is make sure they're good reps. You know, uh, I think you could take 10 swings at TCO competitive and get a very wide range of very wide range of decks that you're facing, players that you're facing. Best thing, I mean, you're, you're better off getting five games against a player who you know and will give you honest feedback on your play while you're at it and will bring some actual actual competition that you can uh, trust is like uh, good competition. You know, uh, if, you're, if you're looking to really test out a deck for a competitive setting. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and kind of similar along those lines, if you're just playing random games on TCO, um, that's okay. Uh, play focused when you're doing that don't just kind of click cards and play cards like be very like deliberate about what you're doing and why and that'll give you more information about the deck as well the last thing for me on that is that if you see the tco queue in, in competitive and there's like some some famous names in there don't be intimidated you know like i know a lot of people like you know you think like oh man that player is like really good they have great decks i don't, I don't want to play them because i'm probably just going to lose anyway like don't feel like that use it as a good challenge for yourself to say like yeah like this is a player who won a vault tour or, you know, has gotten runner up at a vault tour. Like everyone knows who they are. And I see them waiting for a game on TCO and the uh, people are maybe avoiding them. Don't avoid them. Like step into that challenge, see what you can do um, and use those kind of opportunities to play against more famous, strong players as a way of a learning experience for you as well. Yeah, not like us. <laughs> you see us, yeah, <laughs> just bring whatever crap. If you see us, bring some DT or AOA. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have fun. Well, uh, so what are we looking at for other attributes? We've only talked mostly about like low C as one example, but like what else are you looking for? Like what makes a deck stick out to you as a low SAS potential gem, something you might want to give some extra reps to? Is there anything, maybe not just like an arc score, maybe not like just a number, but you know. I've been thinking about this a lot over the past week or so, and we've been brewing on the topic. And quick try, you know, I've uh, you know background in technology, I've studied and professionally done a lot of like machine learning AI stuff. And, you know, when you're early on in your kind of like learning about those topics, you go through all the different, you know, machine learning algorithms. And what's cool is that there are a bunch of different ones, but you also find out that like, hey, 
these things are all trying to solve the same class of problem, but they all do it differently. And the important thing to note there is they do it by making different assumptions about what the answer to the problem is going to look like. And that kind of means that there are some sort of bias inherent in the models that they produce. And I say that to, to mean that I'm starting to think about SAS as a model for telling you how good and how good or weak a deck's going to be. And you can kind of look at the assumptions that it has inherent to it and then what sort of biases it's going to have on the scores it produces, right? So I'll give you an example, right? SAS is saying that there are these four principal scores that we're going to rely on, right? The AERC, the ARC. And not only that, but also I'm going to assume that the one big number that I give you at the end of the day, right? When you say I've got an 85 SAS deck, it's going to be a value that's that I get by summing up the individual scores from all the different cards in the deck, plus or minus, you know, some boost from some synergies uh, with one or two other cards, right? Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that I can tell you accurately how good a deck is by looking at, well, by one, looking at these four categories, and then two, assuming that I can just sum up the values from the cards and arrive at a final score. To me, that says, well, if I can find a deck that is doing something that isn't captured by ARC, by A, E, R, or C, the Amber Control, Expected Amber, Artifact Control, Creature Control, and then some some synergies between two or three cards max, um, then I might have something that's not modeled very well by SAS, or that's not measured very well by SAS. And a good example of that is... Um, uh, like house roles, right? So I've been very interested lately in decks that show very prominent house roles and where each house is kind of is kind of doing its thing that it's supposed to do very well. And I think Bazi is an example of that. And I think also uh, one of my other decks, um, Ashman, Ashman Kanimum is another deck like that. Uh, so Ashman is a Winds of Exchange deck. It has a grunt token it has 16 creatures but eight of them are martians right so this is a very prominent main house in mars not only that it's got a couple of airlocks so you can very often uh have games where you get into a rhythm and you're just calling mars filtering out your non-mars cards uh, making more martian tokens and really just just living up there and having this really big main house mars board and even then when you're going into the other house you're doing so to either play with a bunch of actions or make more tokens so that you can go back into Mars. So like this, this, this deck is really like modeling the like, or is really capturing the essence of what a main house is trying to be with the other houses kind of doing a support thing and not trying to also be main houses. And I don't think that this like main house, other supporting houses thing is something that's measured very well by SAS. And if that's a thing that your deck does very well, um, then it may be a lot better than what SAS is going to tell you it is. So that might be a way to uh, to kind of find some of these lower SAS gems. And I think I think Bazi is kind of in a similar similar realm, right? Like uh, I really enjoy watching Aurora play it, um, but it's what if I look at the creatures in Bazi, like yeah, there's eight really big beefy Sanctum dudes, and like you remember the Library Axis Time Traveler turn, but you don't remember that she also played a whole bunch of Sanctum dudes that you couldn't deal with and just reaped out um, while handcrafting those those combos, right? So Bozzy's also really, uh, really kind of modeling this this main house and support or burst house type of thing, um, which SAS is not picking up on. And there's like you know card interactions there that you could argue it's not catching up on too. But I think that's categorically very interesting to me. And I don't think that uh, SAS does a great job of letting you even like even if you want to just filter down like show me all the decks in my collection where I've got most of my creatures in one house. And most of my pips or, you know, whatever in another house, like that's, that's hard to find. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily enough by itself to make a, a deck, a main house. Cause I think your main house, I don't know. We could all go back and listen to uh bouncing death quark to get like the more original definitive definition of it. Not every deck that has eight beefy creatures is going to necessarily be able to thrive on a main house. Totally. I think part of what makes tra- Ashman work for you is like you mentioned the airlocks, which at least lets you cycle, get some more efficiency like that. You have efficiency in other houses. Like you have, I think, two recorded histories, if I'm not mistaken, in the Star Alliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have ways to cycle through. You have some agency in your card selection and your your uh, handcrafting that I think are all very important things um, if, if you have the situation. And it kind of leads me into like what what I look for with this, which is that I think there's two ways you can go. And both of them, I think, are very 
generously helped by logos and that is mm -hmm. consistency where you can have a game plan that you can consistently execute that's very hard to find and then you have versatility and the versatility would be really like the cards have been drawn a different way and you need to be able to pivot and have a different style of attack and your deck needs to be able to do more than one thing and that's kind of hard to do for low size decks because a lot of low size decks are, are one dimensional but when i think of one of my favorite decks dark tidings deck guadalupe it has logos and it has a pretty good amount of archiving it could you could theoretically say that the untamed house is a main house because if you can get a situation where you just unload a bunch of untamed creatures they have to wipe it or you're just going to reap out and win pretty easily uh but it has enough archiving to give it some agency, but there are some games when maybe like the devices don't come out, or sorry, the uh, the artifacts don't come out in the right order, like the Ulfert device, Tide Warp and Mechabilly, which is a great combo. Um, maybe you have to decide like, am I going to play the Tide Warp against a non-DT deck and might just like lose value from that? Like there's so many different aspects of that where if you get the cards in a different order, you have to do something totally different. I can't rely on like, a sneaky check at four with Tide Warp, Mecha Bowie, and, and uh, Static Collection Array. Or if I don't get the Data Forge early, I can't count on like archiving a ton of stuff with Hydro Catalogger and, and making sure I can do that. So I might just play the Data Forge for a pip. You have to have these different ways to say, like, okay, like Guadalupe has given me different cards this game. I am going to try to win a different way. And you have to be able to win a different way. And not a lot of decks, I think, can say that. But I do think that Logos you know, obviously prior to Woe is a house that is going to really enable you to either have versatility in your game plan or to have consistency in your game plan. Having a lot of pips goes a long way there too. And as being noted in the chat too, house cheating goes on a long way there. A plan B of just playing lots of pips is always very good. <laughs> yeah. It's, pips are the are one way to win the game. Yeah. I agree with you on there. Consistency is tougher to come by at lower SAS levels. A lot of the things that will give you high levels of consistency are going to bump up the SAS kind of by their nature of being things that are highly rated generally. So finding ways to achieve that consistency is, is a little tricky. I was looking at a lot of the decks that you had um, kind of put in the notes for today. And obviously Ashman being a Winds of Exchange doesn't have logos, but most of the other decks that we both picked out as our best examples of stronger low SAS decks all have logos. There is only one deck on our list of 11 sorry, 10, that um, does not have Logos um, in a set that has Logos. And that is one of your Worlds Collide decks that has uh, Star Alliance instead of Logos. Not a ton of efficiency, but I do think that if um, everyone always likes to say like Logos is busted and it's too strong, well, I mean, there is some truth to the fact that a lot of the best decks from the first five sets are all going all gonna to have Logos in them. There's a reason for that. You know, there, are, there are individual sets that are going to be underrated do you think dt in particular is a good place fertile ground to be looking for underrated gems I, I do i think um everyone has to kind of analyze the cards on their own for something that they think is underrated i personally find that if i look at individual card ratings in dt and my experience playing with a lot of dt there's a lot of ratings that i see like where i don't think that card is properly rated to me and so if you can find those kind of cards to say like that card always gives me better value than what Saz thinks it's giving me, then I feel like that's, you know, a good place to to kind of target it. Like one that that really stumped me, I, I ran across a couple weeks ago was Flame Gill Enforcer. Mm -hmm. Um it is rated as a 0.75 arc card. And this is a six power creature that has the ability to capture three for some amber control in a pinch if you need it. Its drawback is that after your opponent raises the tide, you enrage Flame Gill Enforcer. Um, how many, I don't know the number offhand, but how many six power creatures with the potential for Amber Control would you say have a arc score of 0 0.75? Hmm. I, I, I don't know. This, this isn't a trivia. I, I don't know, but I'm guessing there's not many. And I think when you consider something like the Flame Gill Enforcer, having a drawback in its score like that based on opponent raising the tide, and then you think about the meta in the competitive sense of nobody playing Dark Tidings, how often is this card going to be enraged? And if it is, they're doing it because they need to check you and they want to take away your Amber Control. But like, you know, I've had plenty of situations where I'm able to use the action for Flame Gill Enforcer, or at least just use it as a big sticky body. 
that's that's going to be there for a while. So his individual arc scores, Amber Control of 0.75, which is probably okay for a card that has the potential to capture three. Um, but the expected Amber on the Flame Go Enforcer is negative one, mm-hmm. which that number sticks out to me as being very unusual here. Normally with with Saz and uh, and card creature arc, you see a creature bonus of 0.4, which exists in the Flame Veil Enforcer, and that 0.4 is kind of the expected value of a reap of that card. Mm-hmm. Like that plus the effective power is kind of the reap. So the effective power of a six power creature is a, is a 0.6, creature bonus is 0.4. All of that value is completely taken away in the negative one E. And I just feel that I reap with this card a lot more because of its its size. And so this is one example where I think if if you use your experience playing with a set or with cards and you go through the cards, you're going to find some things that in your experience don't line up with what the cards arc might be. And I think those are good places to start to say like, okay, like this deck here is a is a 67, but it has like four cards that I think like, huh, I, I usually get more value out of this. And if you start putting those numbers together, in your head of like this, you know, headcanon Saz for a deck, it, you might end up with something that's like mid 70s. And um, that's before we really talk about like the nitty gritty details of DT doing some of those weird things that are not captured in ARC. Like that's another aspect of DT that I think is is very underrated. Um, where like Flame Gill Enforcer, okay, like you take away the, the negative one E and you have a kind of a lowered amber control because of the potential that they are going to raise the tide. But if they raise the tide, that's three chains. That's that's disruption. And a lot of the cards that force your opponent to raise the tide against you don't have any kind of disruption involved with them. Um, but a lot of times they are a very similar effect as a single binding irons might have. So these are those kind of weird interactions that are not captured in the regular arc. And I think um, just use your gut. Use your experience playing with this stuff to say like, yeah, this, this card looks a little, it may not be like a game changer. Flame Gill Enforcer is not like, I'm not using this as the poster child for like, oh my God, look how poorly rated this card is. DT is so much better. But it's just like, there's a lot of small examples like this. I think that we as players can kind of use our experience to, to kind of point them out and highlight them. Interesting. It blows my mind that the negative E for a creature, which I'm assuming it's getting because yeah, you're saying, well, actually, you're not going to reap with this. It's either enraged or you're going to use the action. Uh, could be could do more than negate the creature bonus that you get for the like, hey, you might reap with this thing and get some amber. Um, that's that's kind of strange to me. I mean, I'm sure there's more in DT. Like, um, I see you're you're showing the chat one of my favorite DT decks, 73 Saz, Evil Twin deck, Gemelody Sagan, Dolpiotrice Irreverente, and it's a Triple Witch of the Dawn deck with a world tree. And if you could just like look at the world tree rating in that for me real quick, what does it say? 0.4. This deck would not work without world tree. That card gets a 0.4 rating in here, but what it means in this deck is that I can get another Witch of the Dawn evil twin in my hand every single turn of the game. And that's just insanely powerful in a deck like this, where you have an evil Chelonia to like, double up on the amber that you're erasing when you play an evil witch of the dawn you have like some other great um good play creatures in the deck like a valmart with a draw pip or an edai or um you might have like a cheetah giving its neighbor skirmish and then you drop the uh evil twin armadrone to steal two like these kind of things like the world tree makes that tick and it has a, a 0.4 rating and so I don't know if that you can call that a three card combo. Um, I, I I don't think so. But like, there are a lot of cards like this that are generally general consensus is that they're a bad card. And mm-hmm. I'll freely admit, World Tree is a bad card in a lot of decks. But there are some weird interactions where it just totally changes the value of that card and how the deck plays with it. I think this kind of gets back to what I was saying before. With you know, you've got something going on in this deck that is not captured well or not modeled well by the assumptions that Saz is making when it's trying to rate decks, right? Like you've got lots of cards interacting in small ways that are creating a, a really potent, you know, combination. It's not just it's not just World Tree and one 
and one evil witch of the dawn it's like yeah i've got three evil witch of the dawns plus uh plus chronophages coming back plus eddie comes back sometimes plus you know i've got these other creatures that are you know evil chelonia is coming back and all of a sudden your amber's gone it's it's kind of this 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 like large large cluster of synergies small synergies that add up to way more than just what you get by summing the individual arc scores and it's really hard to say like it's really hard for uh, a system that's going to use you know four pillars like arc plus plus some synergies to say like oh cool i see how it's all hinging together and enabled by this world tree and that's definitely not something you're going to find very easily without playing the deck right mm-hmm. i mean Aldi to Furious Carl is a similar is a similar thing. It's a 12, 13 creature deck with a soul snatcher that is a brutal soul snatcher combo deck. But guess what? In most 12 creature decks, you're not going to actually play soul snatcher and it gets rated very low. Uh, but it's the card that hinges the whole deck together, you know, um, and is just turns it from being a mediocre, decent mid-range coda deck to uh to a very potent combo deck. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to like sidebar here. Like I'm not trying to dunk on Saz or no, or no, no, not at all. It. Like not at all. How are you supposed to put a numerical rating on a deck that can play Chronophage like six times? Like how mm. do you how do you properly rate that? Like you just can't. These are the kind of interactions that I think people should be trying to look for to say like yeah, like you can't measure how strong this is, but at the same time. To go back to one of my earlier points, the world tree is what makes this consistent, where I can do this almost every game. World tree is generally not a target of artifact control. So maybe if they know what's coming with this deck, maybe they'll save it for the world tree. But being that it's an artifact, once you get it on the board, it's going to be there for a bit longer. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm not counting on like drawing two different cards at the same time at the right time. Those are very like very precarious combos like that this is a bit more consistent because you have multiples of the important card the evil witch of the dawn you have an artifact that's sticky you have some efficiency in logos and so like these kind of things like they add up right and it's not just about like evil witch of the dawns and chronophage like it's don't don't think about like that specific combo like there could be a lot of things that your decks are doing that you can recognize like yeah like this isn't really captured in the arc anywhere and this deck is like a 70 and the effect that this has and the frequency with which I can pull it off really like is some, some unseen value here. And maybe I should give mm-hmm. that deck some more tries. Totally. I mean, there's, there's really no, and again, I want to underline what you said, I'm not trying to, not trying to dunk on SAS at all. I, I, I love it. Love DOK. Um, and I think that any rating system you make is going to have to be built on some sort of assumptions about the sorts of things you're going to measure. Uh, and unless you're playing every single deck and just saying, yep, I played them all against each other and I've got a rough, rough ladder about how good every single deck is, you're going to have to do, do some sort of assumption making. And once you've done that, then there's going to be room for some decks to be doing things that aren't really in keeping with your assumptions just by the nature of the wealth of possibilities of, that there are among the Keyforge, uh, Keyforge deck space. Yeah, Fudgenator brings up a great point. Glimmerlock is something very similar to that. Like Glimmerlock is a two-card combo. Sure, it's got like pretty good rating, I think, for that combo. I, I think it does. Um, but that offers a lot of disruption, a lot of consistency. And it's it's definitely a combo that I, I look for. If I am evaluating like uh mid-low SAS AOA decks and with Untamed, I'm like, ooh, is there a Glimmerlock in here? Is there a Glimmer Nature's Call? Because that consistency with which you can play the nature's call and then next turn play a glimmer and take it back. And then like, if, if you're playing against a creature heavy deck, that can be devastating. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, now Hysteria's deck. Mm-hmm. He has a glimmer along with a Maverick untamed hysteria. It's insanity. And that kind of thing, like obviously that's very rare, right? Like that's a very specific Maverick, but that's not captured in arc, you know, like that's mm. not something that, is going to be properly scored what that can do um and that deck that he has like 65 something like that and that deck just like can wreck things it's more than just those two cards again it's not just like you're not just looking for a deck that has a, a two card combo and then expecting to win games on that back you need to have more than that you don't want a ton of cards in your deck that are just bad you're banking on this this combo unless that combo is like an otk in that case maybe sure but yeah there there are a lot of things out there that 
provide this unseen value. That's a great example, Fudgenator. Thanks for bringing that one up. That being the Glimlock example, yeah. So I think you know one thing that we are kind of hinting at here um, with the SAS scores is that SAS is trying to look at you. You put it this way. This is a great analogy. I thought like SAS is trying to see the forest and it can't see the trees. And you might have some really amazing trees there that SAS isn't really seeing. It sees the cards and the synergies, but it doesn't see like how the whole thing works together necessarily. We reverse the forest and the trees. Maybe so either way, it's, it. yeah, either way, either way, it's a good. I should have just let you talk about. Let's that not. Let's not that get was... too. Let's not get too into specifics here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's analogies are always you know fraught with you know and eh, not quite there. But this is a good one, I think, and I, I'll let you kind of like fix how I butchered it. Well, no, I mean, I'm just giving you a hard time. The uh, like SAS is very good at saying, yeah, there's there's 36 trees over there. You, you total them up. Uh, and you're going to get this number, and it does that very well. And if that happens to give you a good measure of your deck's actual strength, then great. And I think that it's going to be that way for a vast majority of deck or, decks, or at least give you a good starting point for evaluating large pools of decks. But yeah, totally. It's not zooming out, and and it's not trying to, right? This is not a thing it's trying to do. It's not trying to zoom out and say, oh, the forest as a whole has this really cool, like, uh, uh, Evil Witch of the Dawn, like Chronophage, uh, World Tree, like uh, Eddie, like evil other card, exactly like interactions going on. Like that's just not a thing it's trying to do. Um, and so there are definitely decks out there. Uh, Jamela DeSagan being one, uh, Rector being one, Bazi being one. I think um, uh, Alvin Nefarious Carl being one. Where it has a good, it'll tell you a lot about the trees but it's not going to give you a great picture of the forest. Um, and, and yeah, if, if you can find those, like there's a lot of good you can do with them. Definitely. Yeah. One of the things that um, we were talking about earlier um, before the show that kind of led us to this analogy was really um, trying to look at like other ways to find scores that weren't really, like, really representing the value. And uh, we looked at the anti-synergies that Dex had. Um, we kind of sorted by like which of our decks have the most anti-synergy and what are those anti-synergy values. And I found that most of my decks with higher anti-synergy had anti-synergy coming from the types of creature control that it had, whether that was too much creature control or not the right kind of creature control or, you know, any kind of things. Like maybe it was uh, the weird one that stuck out to me was Macrobell that I talked about earlier, my mass mutation deck with 5C. And it has a Kerzap and a standardized testing that are both rated like a 1.6, 1.7 arc. But like those cards give so much value if you play them at the right time. And the reason they had like a 1.6 or 1.7 is because they had some anti-synergies. Kerzap is like, oh, like you have like seven non-mutants. Um, so this is some anti-synergy. And standardized was like you have a lot of like one and two power creatures. Um, so that's that's an anti-synergy but like i get so much more value out of those cards in that deck than the 1.7 would lead you to to believe and so if you i think a decent starting point for you is to look at your deck's anti-synergies and see like okay like this card is rated low because it has a large anti-synergy with what i'm trying to do but a lot of times if you play the deck right you can play around those anti-synergies because those like Saz is looking for like the trees once again, and it's saying like, okay, well, in a vacuum, yeah, like you've got uh, a bunch of non-mutants, so your Kerzap is not very good because it's going to kill all your creatures. But it doesn't see that the mutants that I have are amazing, and that this is the only card I have to wipe the board. And so if I use it to wipe the board effectively, it's going to just bring so much unseen value there. If you were going to try and go back into the lab, maybe do an export from DOK. Take a look at your decks again, wipe out the anti synergy scores. Maybe even, you know, there's, and you had mentioned this before, Kirkdraw, maybe even look at the arc ranges for each of the cards in your deck and say, like, well, Saz gave me some point on the arc scale for each of these cards when it was deciding how to, how to score my deck. What happens if I just max all those out and, you know, kind of trust that Saz got the right range, but maybe it, maybe, uh, it kind of missed the mark a little bit on where it put the final number. Like, what does the ceiling look like if all of the all of the potential lined up for each of the cards in my deck? 
Um, and that might give you another place to, to look at as a starting point for some of these things. And um, yeah, other folks will definitely have, but uh, have uh, you know, made their own scoring systems and such that you could take advantage of too. But just just working within SAS as, as the tool is out there in front of you, like, yeah, throw away the Andrew Synergy, throw away or, or max out on the ARC potential that's been assigned and see if that lights anything else up as other places to look at. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, don't just look at your cards and just be like, okay, like what if I gave this card three more points? Like play the deck, get the reps that we talked about and yep. you'll get a feel for which cards are actually giving you the value um, that they may not be given in, in the SAS or in the arc values. And it's hard to measure it because if you're, if you're looking at anti-synergy, that's a little bit different, but there is also those like the lack of synergy that you're not getting points for. And that's, there's no like way to sort by that in DOK. So like you have to kind of dig deeper into a deck, look at the numbers uh, of each individual card. You can't really like download the CSV and see everything like that. So it does take a little bit more work to find that kind of value. And I think another place where there's a lot of fertile ground is just in woe in general. The reason being there is an awful lot, and uh, well, the final number, depends an awful lot on the value attributed to the token. And this is sort of a coarse grain value, right? Uh, you'd know much better than I would quick draw, but the token uh, is sort of, the, is sort of uh, there, are, there are four or five different values, six maybe, that the token itself at a base level can get, right? It's like point, you know, in quarters, 0. 0.75, 0. 0.5. Is that right? Point, uh, the or 1. the token 0. makers, yeah. I, I forget what they are. I think they're like 0. 0.5. 1, 1.5 and 2 maybe but the token makers get um like a multiplier and so if you mm. look on your dok page you'll see like how many expected tokens you have in there if you're expected to get like a deck with 20 tokens that's pretty high then that's going to take that token multiplier and multiply it by the arc value of your token and so if you have a token that's only worth like 0.4 and you have 20 expected tokens then that token is going to be worth five arc and that basically means mm. that all of your token makers combined in the deck are only scoring you a total of five points mm, sorry i think i meant more like the base arc for the token itself um, the base arc for the token itself is scored just like any other card is just like any other card okay and it's Interesting. It's, it's a creature right like it's it's what it is and so it is scored just like a creature is but the the value that it gives to the deck overall is like that creature, that score of that card, the token card, mm -hmm. times the multiplier of the cards that generate token. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think my where I was going with this is if the value of the token itself is off, right? Like if I'm looking at this prospector here, currently got uh, an arc of one. Um, if it's actually 1.5 and I'm making 18 tokens, right? There's a, a nine point swing in the final number. Uh, mm -hmm. So if the base value is off in a high token generation deck, yeah, you, you may, it's, it's, that's, that's a place where it's worth, worth looking. Any kind of deck that's making lots of tokens will have a wide range of um, score possibilities based on the value that you attribute to the token itself. And, and, you know, that might be something that is worth investigating too. Uh, it's yeah. sort of one of the cases where like an individual cards rating can have you know huge huge impact on the final score of the deck so take with a grain of salt any score for a deck with lots and lots of tokens i i intentionally skipped over woe in this exercise just because yeah. the woe scores are they're better than they were and there's a SAS update again today which is kind of refining a lot of them but it just there's such a wide variance in what your deck is going to do with woe that i think SAS in general doesn't really do it justice and I think like I, I have some woe decks that are like literally 60 SAS still, and they just are full of the cards that are just not very good value. But in the right matchup, yeah, I can make a bunch of Martian creatures and reap out and win pretty easily. And so to me, it's I don't know. Uh, obviously, I don't like woe. I just don't I don't know if SAS tells us as much about woe like. It just it creates different win conditions, often with reaping out with a lot of tokens, that is just so different than what you're trying to do in like any other set. It's a different type of forest, and we're looking for the same sort of trees. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're following still, God bless you. I don't know. <laughs>
uh, someone mentioned troopers in the chat earlier, and like for a while, troopers were extremely lowly rated because they were just like negative amber control, and you'd you'd get a creature, you'd get a trooper deck, and your A would be like negative eight, even though you have like a rant and rive, a Faust, and some captures. It's just you know how do you measure that? Like what if you how you play the game changes what your cards are doing as well. So if you have like a low rated deck that has troopers in it and you're playing this deck and your deck doesn't even want the troopers, just don't make the troopers. And all that negative value that you thought you were getting from those troopers, you're not getting negative value because you're just not making troopers and you don't care about that. Your deck's doing something different. And so if there's other cards that are like, I'm trying to think there's another example I, I thought earlier of like, this card would be low rated, would be poorly rated if I played it the way that Saz thinks I'm going to play it. Just don't play it right. that way and then get normal value from it. There's a lot of a lot of exalt falls into that bucket, right? There's the kind of optional exalting that you'll get dinged for, but you, you look at it and you're like, well, I'm not exercising the option to exalt very often when it's a bad idea. And so in practice, you know, I'm hopefully realizing more upside than the downside. The downside is being represented here in, yeah probably more prominently than I'm realizing in practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do I still like SASCAP as a format, Foxamol? I've never liked SASCAP as a format. I have to assume that was... That was <laughs> directed I hate SASCAP. <laughs> oh, gosh. I will answer very quickly. Oh, very, very quickly. Uh, I do still like SASCAP as a format. Uh, actually, I, some of the... Actually, we've mentioned her a lot, but the SASCAP events that Aurora ran on the time shaper sanctimonious time shapers discord was a big part of like uh me getting to explore a lot of my collection during the during the pandemic when i otherwise wouldn't have and i love it as a tool to prompt you to explore more of your collection do i think that it is a great way to equalize a playing field not not as much as folks would make would like want hope for you to think right but i i don't think that the folks who are promoting sascap are generally doing it as a way of really leveling the playing field and if if they are it's it's probably not doing as much as they'd like i like it as a way to get folks to play different decks it does that i would agree with that yeah does that <laughs> uh the clogging all right we're gonna we'll, we'll answer the clogging's question here uh it's it seems obvious to me sascap versus alliance what explores your collection more sascap easily i i would agree i would agree yeah yeah i mean alliance we're not gonna i'm not gonna take the bait clogging not tonight. Talked about Alliance a couple weeks ago. Not going to do it again. So. And I'm hopefully, well, I, I think I feel like I said this last last week. said it last week, but we released it two weeks. I don't know. All confused because we released in different order. Um, but uh, yeah, have the results of the survey that we put out for um, formats and such going up in a publicly visible place. Uh, should be this week by the time this episode drops. So if you... Uh, you are listening to it in your podcatcher and not hear this on Twitch, you can probably head over to sloppylabwork.com and see some juicy charts in numbers. Um, man, I just, I'm just giving myself deadlines. We'll see if it happens. Usually it's me <laughs> giving you work to do, but you're just going to give yourself the work to do. Ah, oh, geez. Oh, what are we doing here? Well, we had a few other items on our list here to hit on before we signed off. Do... What do we think is the difference between a good SAS cap deck and a low SAS Archon deck? We kind of talked about this a little bit, right? A little bit. And I want to actually, this was something that uh, Ryan brought up in our fancy Discord server that I want to give credit to. Uh, and it wasn't something that I had really thought about before. But when you're playing in a like SAS ladder, SAS cap scenario, you can try and push strategies that take advantage of the answers to that strategy being things that. Uh, push a deck's SAS up, right? So you can get away with a less potent rush deck in a SAS cap environment than you can in an open Archon environment because like the TMTPs and the graphs are kind of uh, graduating out or promote or pushing out the decks from your SAS range and they're not around to answer you, right? So, so that's the thing that you could do. And that's not something I'd really thought about before, but it's not something that you can count on in an open an open environment, right? So you can't take a you can't hope to have the same success with a middling rush deck in an unrestricted environment that, as you would in a SASCAP environment. Yeah, SASCAP is about manipulating the meta, you know? And mm. like you said, you might know that certain cards are probably going to be higher rated and they're not going to make it 
into these low SAS cap events. Or you might know that like a low SAS decks probably aren't going to have as much creature control. They're either going to have all creature control or they're going to have no creature control because the meta scores will drop things down a lot. And so SAS cap is really about manipulating the meta and finding something that will fit in that meta. Whereas a good low SAS Archon deck, you know, you have to assume that you're playing against the best of the best still. And you may have to make sure that your deck can handle whatever it's whatever's thrown at it because you could you could face anything. You could face trainer scholar, you could face like quadruple befuddle and you need to make sure that you have a game plan for that. You know, you have to be much more flexible, I think, with a low SAS Archon deck. There's one other question that I had. And I think everyone's probably like, you know, wondering this and, and Josh when sent he sent this probably also wanted to know about this too. Like, how common are these decks? Like is is Bazzi and and sure we'll say Judge and these other like Rector, are these ones like extremely rare that they're like Saz says that they are around seventy, but they are good enough to compete at a high level event. How rare are these? Are do we all have these like sitting in front of us just waiting for us to find out which ones they are or are they really like extraordinarily hard to open in general answer from the chat one in 3.1 3.2 million <laughs> how did uh, i know number... that was the clog in <laughs> who else could it be it was... <laughs> the number is too precise it's good i like it the nose is stuff uh i would say so the benchmark then uh, so a 90 plus deck a 90 plus deck is roughly one in a thousand according to DOK. At least if I look at my I look at the ninety-two that's on screen here, it says it's you know roughly one in a thousand. Do you think that the Bazi, the Rectors, the judges of the world are uh, more or less rare than one in a thousand? I think over under. If I had to do an over under, I'd say they're a lot less rare than one in a thousand. Okay. I'd say they're closer to one in five hundred than they are one in a thousand probably maybe this is going to get me into trouble i think they're probably more common than one in 500 more common than one in 500 okay that's my gut okay because you know like it goes back to the first point right it's about reps and it's about your affinity i truly believe that there is enough agency in the game of keyforge as is where if you play a deck a thousand times you're going to be really good with that deck and you're going to be able to beat a lot of things that you shouldn't beat with that deck and I, I think another one that actually with that many reps that comes to mind is uh, Low Curve from Hydrophil Attack. Mm-hmm. It's a Worlds Collide deck. Uh, I forget what its SAS is. I, don't e- I can't even tell you very many specific details of it, except that... Low 70s, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, Hydro's played over 1,000, maybe over 2,000 games with that deck. And when you play that many and you understand you've encountered like almost every situation you can encounter, you can do, like, understand and recognize the situation and make the right decision. And I really feel, I'm not saying that you need 2,000 games to like become elite with that, but I just think that there is enough agency in the game where you don't need to open like absolute fire to compete if you have like the right thing you're looking for, the right number of reps, and just kind of understanding what your deck's trying to do and playing with it instead of against it. Yeah, I actually had to face this deck in um, oh, 69 right now, 70 SAS cap deck. Cool. Yeah, I had to face this deck in NKFL uh, one round, and I want to say it was an NKFL gold match. Um, so that's that's a good stage for a sixty-nine deck, as it were. I think he said that it doesn't play as well into the current meta, and that's fine. That's KeyForge that happens, but it's still a good deck, and the right matchups can still punch way above its SAS. And again, like the details of what's in the deck don't matter as much. It's really just about you know a player who is able to. Find something that they had an affinity for. It's World's Clyde Brobnar. I mean, geez. And uh, <laughs> you play it enough where you are just, you're one with the deck. And, and it's, it sounds hokey, but I, I, I really do believe that this game has more agency than people think. Find something that, that works for you, that you like, that gives you options during the game and is not just playing cards for value. I think you're going you're gonna to find some things that will surprise you if you get 30, 40, 50 games in with them. A good note to end on, though, I want to, um, you know, we, we take pride in our pronunciation here at the Sloppy Lab. So uh, I want, if, uh, Aurora, if you're listening, is it, is it Bazi Biz Toth or Bazi Biz Toth? I don't know. Uh, 
What's your, what are you putting your stake on, Quick Draw? I, I've known people with the last name Toth, T O T H. And I think when I pronounced it earlier, I said Toth. So I don't know. Okay. Well, maybe we'll find out. <laughs> maybe we will. Maybe we won't. And do you want to take a stab on, on Rector? Topor Bigos? Nope. Topor? Roll that R? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> nope. I'm going to stay out of the Polish. All right. Right on. Well, uh, well, cool. That's fun. Uh, I think maybe then we maybe have a sponsor we should hear from before we move on. Yes. Uh, this episode of Barlin Beaker uh, was brought to you by the Golden Spiral Nightclub. Discover the allure of the Golden Spiral Nightclub, uh, where amber flows freely as the night unfolds. Immerse yourself in the rhythmic dance of the Archons with DJ Cincy Rex, forging keys amidst vibrant lights. Experience in light, a night like no other at the Golden Spiral. Very nice. Quick draw, have you been to the Golden Spiral nightclub? I'm not a nightclub person, but DJ Cincy Rex sounds pretty, pretty enticing. That they are. That they are. Uh, and folks, I want to let you know that uh, Bottom of the Beaker is recorded live right here at twitch.tv slash sloppy lab work. Wednesday evenings at 9.30 Eastern. You can find uh, recordings of our past shows and other streams over at youtube.com. Search for at Sloppy Lab Work over there. And for the very best content, uh, 34? Uh, no, no, no. 57 times distilled and scraped from the bottom of the beaker. Search for that very phrase in your podcatcher of choice. And uh, we'll be there next to those low sass gems ready to jam with you. All that and more at sloppylabwork.com. And uh, quick draw. You got any words for the folks getting off of the final audio stop? Hope it was useful for people. I hope you all find your own personal rector. And while you're doing so, please remember to stay sloppy.